1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 19th, 2017, the I think we're going to be okay edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We've had a very giddy pre-show here at the uh, Slate DC studio with John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And the reason we're giddy is that we can see Emily. We have a huge TV and we can see Emily. So it's almost like Emily is in the room, except a larger version of Emily is in the room with us than right, the actual Emily. She's literally kind of al- hovering <laughs> over us. It is God-like. Kind of an
0: alarming prospect, no but, doubt. But I'm but, glad to be among you, sort of.
2: But this is an, This is a huge and important development that we should just ruminate on for just a moment. We used to, to the extent we could have a visual representation of Emily at all, it was like on David's laptop, always askew. Emily had half of her head <laughs> inside of a box to keep the reverberations <laughs> from.
1: Literally. She talked into a box.
2: Yeah, and so it was it was a net reduction in closeness because of the odd yeah. angle. Every time you saw her talking, you thought, why is she trying to put her head in that box? Now we have this <laughs> angelic vision above us. Yeah. Uh, I'm feeling like it's a whole new...
1: It's Whole true. situation. That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. But actually, I want—I now worry, John, that because she's above us and she's so big, that I'm going to be more respectful of her opinions than they warrant.
2: I think the—I think the eleven years we've been doing the show would suggest you were impervious to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Problem. Yeah,
0: I think you're immune too, Although I like that idea,
2: I think the fact that she's like hovering over us is, is she's just a physical manifestation of what she has been on the show ever since ever it's since she it started.
1: It's true, a looming, threatening presence. Is that what you mean? No, no, I think uh, an I, angel. No, no, no,
2: an angel to which we uh, all turn our gaze for reflection and uh, inspiration.
1: On, hmm. I don't know why we're so chipper. I think it's because we're together on this week's Gabfest. We are not actually going to talk about the inauguration of President Donald Trump, although he will be president presumably by the time you listen to this. The reason we're not talking is because it's going to happen between now when we're taping and by the time you probably listen to this, uh,
2: it'll probably be impossible for me not to talk about the inauguration. Yeah, but yeah, we're not going to. It. It. It's not. It's not going to yeah, 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 be a topic. Yeah, yeah. I got it.
1: Um, Pew. Pew. And you're doing play by play for it, John.
2: Yes, I am. Uh, not only starting in the morning on CBS this morning, but then
1: uh, hosting a primetime special with Gail King at 8 p.m. Eastern. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Our topics will be uh, we're going to talk about the Affordable Care Act and the fight to repeal it and the fight to fight the fight to repeal it. How right. should Democrats and supporters of the Affordable Care Act try to preserve it? What should their strategy be? Then we're going to talk about how to cover Donald Trump. There's been kind of a series of ruminations about that in media and elsewhere recently, and we're going to offer our, our thoughts on that. Uh, we will, of course, talk about the pending release of Chelsea Manning from federal military prison and President Obama's decision to commute her sentence. We'll have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about a <laughs> Emily and I said it's so nice to come to kind of find a <laughs> trivial piece Arresting of law to, to fight about. So, there will be a, we're going to talk about this really interesting trademark case involving a band called the Slants and also the f- name of the Washington football team that the Supreme Court heard this week. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus. And hey, I have a great announcement. I don't even think you guys know this. We have a live show in Los Angeles on March the 1st. And we are not yet ready to sell tickets because uh, for some reason the ticketing isn't ready. But if you are in Los Angeles or planning to be in Los Angeles around March 1st, we're going to have a live show. Come join us. It's our first Los Angeles live show. We're eager to do it. The first task the new Congress is going to take on is tackling Obamacare, at least the first big task they're going to take on is tackling Obamacare, which they have been vowing, which the Republicans among them have been vowing to repeal for years The repeal and replace fight promises to be bloody and complicated. There are multiple factions. There's a president who's sending profoundly mixed signals about what he wants to do. We have talked um, some about the policy. We're going to talk more about the policy around it. We're also going to talk about uh, the strategy that those who wish to preserve Obamacare are going to use to, to preserve it. We saw a bit of a preview of some of this last week when a Colorado Congressman named Mike Kaufman, a Republican, was besieged by constituents at a town meeting who were badgering him about his desire to repeal Obamacare and his the, the inadequacy of his uh, proposals to replace it. And he ended up kind of sneaking out the back door early and leaving a whole bunch of his constituents in the lurch. John, polls seem to show majority support for the Affordable Care Act for the first time in years. Why is that?
2: Well, I guess the simplest answer uh, which may be too, Pat, is the, the people defend something once it's being taken away from them. I mean, the, and they, there's definitely political science to back this up in elections so that uh, if people are told their vote is being taken away from them, they're much more likely to vote than they would if they were simply making a choice between two candidates or between two parties. So if that also works here, that people are um, – clinging to something that they don't want taken away. I think also the lack of an alternative, you know, the polling shows that only 20% of the country, even people who, there are a group of people who want it repealed, but don't want it repealed if there's no option in place, and that's that's also causing, I think, something probably – and I think then, again, the and the final thing I would throw in the mix, this is all conjecture, but we see President Obama's approval ratings increasing. I wonder if questions about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, depending on how it's asked in the polls, become a proxy for just general kind of nostalgia
1: for Obama, fear about the future, that kind of thing. I'd like to ask the distant angelic presence over there, Emily Bazelon. Me. That's me. <laughs> floating above us. A lot of Democrats and and liberal organizers are talking about borrowing Tea Party tactics to try to derail the efforts to take out Obamacare. What what do you think that means and do you think it's likely to be effective?
0: Well, it means being the intensity voters as well as being able to point to the polls showing majority support. So being the people who show up at the meetings, who deluge the lines of the Congress folk with calls, who, you know – being the constituency from which representatives hear very loud and strong and telling stories of people who really fear for their health and their lives if they lose the insurance they've gotten through Obamacare. It's already having some effect in the sense that the Republicans are seeing a political cost for not having a clear alternative, and they're having to decide how to negotiate this strange space between Their past plans, which are much dingier in terms of actual amounts of subsidies, especially for older people and sicker people, the gap between that past reality or past plan and Trump's statements about how we're going to have health insurance for everyone and it's going to be beautiful and terrific and better it's not really clear how that rhetoric lines up with any sort of actual plan. And people are actually paying attention to that in a way that the problems of the Affordable Care Act made not clear that it would have this sort of political consequence before.
1: John, are Republicans right that Americans want more choice in health care? Is there remedy for the problems that the health care system has? Are those uh, remedies? The remedies that Americans want.
2: Well, I mean, yes and no. The, they're the rhetorical remedies people want. I, so, and especially if the rhetorical remedies are the ones that Donald Trump is offering, and it's it is Emily um, mentioned this, but it bears repeating the the political fix that the Republicans are in at the moment. Because you have Donald Trump who's promising more coverage, more people will cover it, uh, better coverage, and also lower cost, and he's promising it all immediately a pony yeah no that's 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 a, that right that's a pony uh, encircled by a glowing group of unicorns and that's <laughs> an impossibility even if I think her- if a
1: glowing group of unicorns found a pony they would they would horn it to death i don't think that ponies and unicorns are of the same Our species natural they're natural well, I, I think the unicorn would be like Get out! Boom. But that gives you some. Get your hornless like nice self high high lights out
0: of here. Lights around them no, that's lights. why
2: this is such a fantastical thing because it it's a situation in which the pony and the unicorn can be in sync. Um, and and what I, my point is is that even if you imagine a replacement that could be written and all the differences could be ironed out as fast as Donald Trump wants them ironed out, which is any gargantuan if there could be a lot of winners and losers and a lot of churn and a lot of scared people. Donald Trump is promising that none of that will happen and that's a that's a problem. So so for me that's the biggest thing out there. So to your point about choice. I mean, yes, people want choice and freedom if choice and freedom means their premiums don't go up, they don't have huge copays, all their stuff still gets covered, they don't get denied coverage. I mean, all the things that there are built-in protections for in the in the Affordable Care Act. Now, if you're younger, you want all those things even more than if you are You know, a middle-aged person in the 10-year period before you would go on Medicare, where you are more likely to be sicker than when you're younger and where you're most in peril because you're not yet in Medicare. So the public question on this, I think, is hugely up in the air. And then finally, I would say that the chief critique of President Obama was that he shoved something on the American people that they did not want. And he did it without consulting the other side. There's an absolute possibility that in order to get this to happen, that those two things may be what Republicans have to do in order to get this to pass. And also I should – sorry, final thing. Since a lot of this is being done first through reconciliation, you're stripping away the individual mandate and other parts of the law that sort of have maximum damage without – being able to get the replacement in there quickly to at least if it can to mitigate the problems of the first, and we saw that in the in the CBO score this week that said 18 million people would be knocked off. Well, that's based on just sort of looking at what would happen through reconciliation. So that's a, another bad story for those who would
1: want to repeal and replace. Emily, I want to go back to discussing this grassroots strategy that supporters of of Obamacare want to use and this this uh, being the intensity voters and showing up at town meetings and making loud noise about that. I wonder how much you think the grassroots complaints of voters matter to members of Congress who are not in swing districts.
0: Yeah. I mean, so a couple of things. One is that it's not clear to me that Republican voters are not going to be among the disenchanted in this group. I mean, one of the ironies that I think we've talked about before is a lot of the people who stand to lose coverage under the exchanges in particular are white working class Americans who tend to vote Republican, a lot of them in rural areas. And I'm not exactly sure how they're going to factor that into their politics, but the notion that they're going to just like sit on their hands while their health insurance gets um, taken away or becomes uncertain doesn't seem like any sort of sure bet to me. I mean, there's this just odd political like tangle going on where the constituency that really... H- You know, in great numbers brought Trump to power are the people who stand to lose significantly from this change. So in that sense, I think these Republican congressmen could still be on the hook. And then the other thing, and this is more long-term, so it's probably irrelevant, but the question of whether gerrymandering is going to be as successful or as allowed in 2020 is not a sure thing, both because of a court case that's coming up. You guys are looking at me with great puzzlement, but there's a really interesting challenge. No, David was. You looking down.
1: I didn't know. I didn't know
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a court case coming through Wisconsin. Real, if it, if the Supreme Court went for this formula, which is by far, you know, by no means a sure thing, but it's possible. That case challenges gerrymandering and gives the court a way to set a limit on political gerrymandering that we have not really seen before. And the district court in Wisconsin struck down Wisconsin's gerrymandering plan because of this new way of thinking about this. Anyway, we can talk about that more in another episode. But the Republicans, if they are being smart, um, shouldn't be so sure that gerrymandering is going to continue to be as, um, as sharp, as acute as it is now.
2: If I can just p- piggyback quickly on that, the, the place to watch for the political sensitivity that you're talking about, David, would have to be the Senate because they need 60 votes and because, you know, obviously a bigger landmass for the, for the members. Um, and so you have and a couple of other political tensions here. I mean they are worried in uh, – at least Republicans in the Senate are worried that Donald Trump, who has great currency with those intensity voters who are going to show up in 2018, um, they don't want him turning on them. So they have to meet these uh, extraordinary goals he set for them. And he also they also need him out there talking about this stuff in a positive way at rallies. The challenge with that, as we've talked about before, is how does Donald Trump get juiced about some of the stuff that's going to be a part of the churn that will come from repeal and replace? Um, is he really going to go out there and love talking about this stuff? That's an open question. And also, how are you going to get 60 votes for some of the – for the replace? In the Senate? Well,
1: well, which part of it needs – Democrats in which part doesn't
2: the non-reconciliation part, but with the replace part,
1: but so
2: any... they can
0: repeal it and destroy it without any Democrats, right? right. Take in out the stuff to... that has
2: budgetary effects that can come out in, in reconciliation, but it's all the other stuff that the, the health care Regulations, rules and ideas that would change the system but that wouldn't have a budgetary impact would require another piece of legislation. But
1: isn't there now a new theory that they can – because it's all – it all has a huge budgetary impact that they can appeal to – I don't know who it is, the parliamentarian, parliamentarian. and say any – our replacement bills also are budgetary. The, the, the bills that affect sort of how insurance is regulated are also budgetary in effect and so therefore we can pass them under reconciliation too.
2: Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting, and then we're all suddenly going to learn the name of the parliamentarian whose name I've now forgotten. But um, secondarily, the the challenge there then is you are really embracing the idea that you're going to make this huge change without any any Democrats, and that's something that I mean. Then you're just perfectly repeating the, the what they say was a was a signature flaw of Barack Obama. Well, presidency. do you think
1: do you think that they're thinking their strategy? The Republicans are thinking that their strategy is okay. We're going to we're going to replace and we're going to do it we're going to just have one big moment we're going to just get one big bill it'll be a you know really tough but it, we're going to get that bill passed and then we'll be done with it or do you think it's going to be we're going to have a series of 10 little yeah. things each one and each one of those you can pick off a few democrats to support it's a good question. And and do it little by little, but but does just drag out the process, yeah. drag right. process
0: or devolve to the states. There's that idea too floating around out there.
1: Right. Well, that's where some of the
2: benefits and change and in their view, cost savings would come from is putting some of this back on the states. So one thing I should f- try and explain is that my theory about let's say they did something that would that would basically come, get the replacement through with all Republican votes. Somebody might say, well, they they don't care, right? Who cares if they get charged with hypocrisy for doing what Obama did? That's a valid point except that if there is churn and there are victims and some of those – not victims but there are losers in this and some of those losers are in the Trump coalition and some of those losers talk for a period of time. It then becomes not only is the thing that was sent through not working out for these people but it was sent through and it was passed in this kind of heavy-handed way. So it adds to the potential ugliness uh, if the, if if the replace doesn't work, which I think could be a problem down the line.
0: And one imagines Trump just turning on the Republicans in that scenario. It's very hard yeah. to imagine him sticking with them and soldiering through. Uh,
2: that's certainly something I'm hearing from from Republicans in the Senate for sure. Is that they think that like he's with you today, he could totally be against you tomorrow.
0: I could like this give it back to the states idea i mean as a political solution because so to flesh this out slightly more there was an idea a tom price tammy baldwin idea from like 10 years ago that you would make it easier for states to offer their own alternatives as long as they were covering just as many people on essentially the same the same levels of benefits as Obamacare. But that, in fact, became very hard for a state to do, practically speaking. And so you could open that up and then... Politically speaking, first of all, it's like a federalism move, which Republicans generally are in favor of, and you encourage experimentation, and states that succeed could become models for others. But also politically, it turns it into a state story, which is much harder for the national media to really care about and cover. That's not a good thing. We we should cover that. But it just seems like you could... Get away from having to actually negotiate out all these details, create this huge bill that would have a lot of flaws and you'd be on the hook for it. And this is not my idea. It's Ezra Klein's idea and some other people.
1: I'm sure that has real virtues. And I'm also sure that they're like that there's no chance that you don't get states which just totally screw over their poor people.
0: Right. Uh, no, I mean, it has that well, fear that comes with it that when you turn Medicaid into a block grant, then like you charge fees for it, like they're doing in Indiana right now. It it definitely has that potential problem. There's supposed to be safeguards in terms of the benefits and the level of coverage that the states have to keep. The danger is that they'll do the, you know, here, this is your state's without putting in those protections.
2: And every protection you have costs money, which uh, yes, which challenges that. your claim that this is going to be much cheaper. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was just setting aside the much cheaper part. because That just seems like pie in the sky.
1: Uh, Last question on this. Emily, do you have a sense that the Democrats elected Democrats actually have the stomach for this fight? They seem so demoralized by everything. Are they going to be able to kind of get it together and fight?
0: Yeah. I mean, they need a fight to fight. This is what they're there for. They need a cause right now. And this is it. And it seems like they'll have the wind at their back in terms of polls. John is I totally,
2: uh, totally I know. I think you I think you're I think you're exactly right. Uh, and in fact, the reason I think this is right is because I was talking to a Democratic senator last night who was using uh, their um, conversations and thinking and messaging around the Affordable Care Act as the example of kind of where they feel like they have. Um, some sense of themselves. I mean, obviously, not only allows them to protect benefits for a portion of their constituency, um, but it also lets them talk about things that they all have a natural kind of already have in their hymnal that they can that they know and can speak about. Uh, And also, if it's if it's true, as Ron Brownstein and others have written, that the the real group that's in danger of some of getting uh, being in the losers column from changes to the Affordable Care Act are those blue collar voters. This is a a way to begin that conversation with that group of voters that Democrats are trying to start. I mean, real people are in real fear about healthcare and about whether it's the Affordable Care Act or not. And so anytime you are the author of, of change in that area, you scare people who either are engaged with the healthcare system at the moment or who have been and know what it did to their job what it did to their savings what it did to the savings they didn't have and if you are the author of change you are in a tougher spot and you all have to message beautifully in order to allay that fear and the one guy who gets it wrong uh, becomes the standard bearer for the whole idea and it's just harder to be you know i mean this goes back to machiavelli it's it's harder to be the agent of change than the one protecting uh the status quo so that puts democrats i think in the better uh in the better spot in this in this super highly charged moment where people are, are on an issue about which people are so nervous.
0: Democratic senators scored some good points with their base, at least this week and last in the con- some of the confirmation hearings. So, you know, some of the questioning of Tom Price of Betsy. DeVos, um, you can see people getting some TV play and and seeming to really stand up for their values, like Maggie Hassan realizing on television that Betsy DeVos didn't know that the most important special education law that protects students with disabilities is a federal law that requires federal enforcement. You know, those are like real things that people have their constituencies that really care about those issues.
1: This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by SAP. real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. As I look at uh, the Washington that Donald Trump is moving into, there are four or possibly five distinct different uh, battlefields, if you will, or distinct arenas, maybe. The first is the personal spectacle that is Donald Trump, his tweets, his antagonisms, his passions. The second is what his administration and the 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 cabinet he's appointed and the officials he's appointed are actually doing as a matter of policy. That's the second. The third is what Congress is doing legislatively. The fourth is what the courts and the Supreme Court in particular will be doing. And the fifth is kind of how the actual American people are experiencing one to four. And those all appear to me to, to be sort of distinct. The media – Meanwhile, has focused very heavily on number one. Um, Number (laughs) one is the exclusion of all (laughs) the exclusion of everyone might say. Right, right, right. So, as Trump arrives as president, as he takes office, and he's clearly somebody who is who relishes attacking the media, relishes confrontations with it, done his best to discredit uh, reputable and and correct and factual information that our colleagues are reporting. So, given all this, Emily, should we cover Trump at all? David Brooks, uh, in a column this week, makes the case that the media should essentially ignore the spectacle that is Trump and only focus on these other things, that there's no gain, no edification, no nothing from from paying attention to the lies and ridiculous shit that he says on, on Twitter and in public. But he is the president, of course.
0: Right. Well, Brooks was making a distinction between the carnival, as he called it, the spectacle and the actual doings of the president and his branch and Washington and saying that he was going to try to focus on what Trump and his people do as opposed to the more flagrantly outrageous tweets. And I think there is no way the media is not going to cover the tweets, but we should desperately hope that the media begins to shift more to what people are actually doing as opposed to what Trump is saying, because the balance is just completely off. And I, for one, am feeling relieved to be out of this interregnum period. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm wondering (laughs) what it's going to be like. Uh, but it's time to like see what it means to say everyone's going to have healthcare and it's going to be beautiful. It's time to actually be held accountable for promising ponies and for changing foreign policy. If that's really going to happen, or maybe this is all just a lot of thunderous nothing about threatening NATO. I would like to see some actual events unfold and the media focus on those things and I really... Think that Jack Schaefer is right to call on the press corps in Washington to more and more not depend on access journalism and get out and do some reporting and break some stories and figure out, you know, who in these federal agencies who have enormous power, what are they actually doing? What is this all going to look like? Jack is also right that we should feel invigorated and like we have a very clear sense of purpose going forward.
1: The reason Jack is right is Jack that Schaefer is a Politico columnist, former columnist, and we'll. There is a
0: particular column that from like this week that we'll post. This. Although he's On been
2: this. he's been writing he's this, he's been saying it for a while. Column for a while, and the first conversation I ever had with Jack back in two thousand and five, when I moved over to Slate, was about these issues, and this is why this, in a sense, has nothing to do with Donald Trump. We are in an acute and an acute moment because his behavior and his appeal to ratings put in the highest relief the press's worst instincts. But Jack and I had questions about the benefits of access, you know, ages ago, because, of course, it's always been true that there is this uncomfortable relationship about uh, in a White House between the access you're given and then the stories you write and where. So it's always been true that you want to have a diverse media diet so that you both have somebody who is on the inside, has access to all the people and can Convey their thinking so that you explicate why they're doing all of these things. And then right next to that, you have analysis and reporting by people who have nothing to do with the administration. There aren't, There isn't just one reporter in Washington. There's a whole team of them. And you can't have one person do both. It's just there aren't enough hours in the day. But if you're going to lose one of the two. Lose the access. And, and Jack and,
0: was arguing it could be liberating to lose the access. Well,
2: right? it always I mean. is liberating to lose the access. And in this case, the the challenge, though, is um, I mean, it's amazing that people still spend as much time talking on uh, talking about the things it's okay. if Donald Trump tweets something that has to do with policy, uh, then that's fine. But just the tweets themselves, the amount of energy that it takes up talking about them is um, is but, amazing. And obviously, he knows exactly well, how to do this to manipulate to get coverage about a fight with John Lewis John, or yeah, or but with if Meryl someone offers
1: yeah, I mean if someone offers you candy, John, it's really hard not to take the candy. It's candy so, is really good. Like if, if it's yeah, if it's I an know, excellent yeah, but then I know, but and but and, and that we'll die
0: candy. if all we eat is no, no, candy no I for understand that.
1: I understand that. But nobody in our prof- very few people in our prof- profession have shown the ability. To not take the candy when the candy is there in the form of a of, of a thwack at John Lewis, you know, saint saint of the the country, a thwack at Meryl Streep, uh, people they cannot resist taking that bait. So how do you how do you persuade? I mean, I I don't take the bait because I'm not in this it's profession not your job to take anymore, the bait or even but, to
0: think about taking. The but,
1: bait. but how do you literally? Get people not take the bait even when you know that taking the bait when you know that that standing up righteously for john lewis who is a you know is a one of the great men of the world standing up for him and supporting him is it will make you feel good and that you'll get a whole bunch of yah yah ya's from your supporters on the left how do you tell people not to bother.
0: Isn't it a matter of proportion? I mean, it's not that you don't ever have to mention that, you know, Donald Trump denigrated John Lewis in a a fit of trying to defend himself or being vindictive. You can choose your uh, description of it. It's just that if that takes over your entire... 24 minutes of television, then you've done a disservice to your audience. Well, that, you spend two minutes on it fine.
2: That, you're, there you go. That's exactly it's your audience. Your audience are the people who care the audience are the people who are freaked out about healthcare. care. And so every minute you spend uh, on a John Lewis fight, which in part, you know, and whether it's John Lewis or Meryl Streep or the cast of Hamilton, which, you know, is in part being authored for the purposes of taking the eye off the ball so that you are then abetting a press strategy in the way that you could – there are other press strategies you can abet, but in this case, you have – this is a somewhat of a new phenomenon. You are not only covering something that is not fundamental to the people out in the country, but you're also abetting an administration in a way that perhaps you could argue – I don't know if I can carry this argument all the way through – but that is abetting a strategy even more than the so-called access journalism uh, that would have been practiced in the past.
1: Okay. So – as it turns out the that there's lots of things that Trump is saying which are shiny objects, like like about Meryl Streep or the cast of Hamilton. There are also things about Trump which aren't which don't really concern his policy directly like his business ties or his taxes that he won't release, which relate to his personal corruption which are important. There are questions around what Congress is doing. There are questions around the qualifications of all his nominees. There are a lot of fucking stories right now and a lot of different paths. And which of the, are there are any other ones of those that you guys say, like, we shouldn't focus on? Because Emily, if you say it's two minutes on John Lewis, well, two minutes on John Lewis, two minutes on taxes, two minutes on this, two, you know, you've, you've got 47 minutes pretty quickly. So how do, how do we how do we act?
0: I mean, I think this is obviously like uh, this is a a lame answer to your question. This is a news judgment people have to make every day, given what's going on. But the basic challenge is the blizzard challenge, that there's just going to be so much and it's going to be so chaotic that really important stories are going to get lost. And I do think that editors and producers and People, especially on television, where time is so limited and reporting resources are also limited, that there's just going to have to be like a a <laughs> slightly different calculus that is not just a ratings calculus about what's happening in the world and who is being affected. And that one of the... Um, big yardstick should be, okay. how many people are actually going to be affected by this story? Is this something that is going to change people's lives? Or are we covering something, even though we know that's not true for some other reason? But does that mean that then we're missing a story that is going to deeply affect a lot of Americans?
2: Right. So I think one example could be the the Betsy DeVos hearing. So there's a lot of Shiny things that got covered. One the was grizzly the grizzly bear. The grizzly bear and the, the allowing guns in schools to, um, to protect from grizzly bears. There was the um, now somebody could arguably say, wait a minute, like that's that matters if if that is uh, a demonstrative mindset on her part that was going to allow uh, more guns in schools. So I, but but the grizzly bear was one thing. The other was the back and forth on her interrogation by Senator Al Franken
0: about growth and proficiency. Yeah,
2: there's obviously an idea at the back of that. I think. Um, Um, That was a bit of a like semantic back and forth and gotcha moment. The idea question, which is to say the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is that was it. That's the moment. I mean, that's a federal law that will affect a lot of people if she uh, doesn't enforce it, if she doesn't care enough about it. Um, and and or if
0: she just didn't know that it was right, a federal law, like, right. that's a big thing not to know if you're going to be the de- secretary of the Department of Ed- Federal Education. So the that to, Department, I
2: mean. r- that to me is, a, is an area where that should go to the top of the list. That's a thing that is important, and her confusion about it is important and does tell us something. W-
1: what if what if all of the other what if everybody else is showing grizzly bears, and you're showing idea clip. No, you'll lose. Yeah. I mean, you, you are a host of a show which has ratings. You, I don't know how you're judged. I, I hope you're not paid based on your ratings. Or maybe I hope you are paid based on your ratings. <laughs> um, but, no. Uh, but, but I imagine, like, you know, the, when your media outlet, as somebody who's edited media outlets, like when your media outlet is not reaching the audience that other media outlets are reaching, there's a lot of pressure on you. Sure. So, so how— There's
2: even more pressure on, like, daily cable— where then there is because by by the time you get to Sunday, it's sorted and people are tuning in for the big questions. So you can you you it's not it's not out of sync with what you're trying to do. Um, I think one of the ch- one of the challenges for me is that you know explaining in the short amount of time um, available why the disconnect between Donald Trump and his nominees for cabinet posts on issues like Russia. Are so important because, you know, we're at the beginning of administration where the battle lines of who actually speaks to the administration is crucial. It's not just about Russia, but it's about all policy. It's about other how other uh, countries react to the confusing signals, getting all that across so people understand the larger context of what to them might seem a Washington like sort of a stupid Washington issue. That's the challenge. But for the cable networks, which have to have something on all the time and keep people's attention, that's where the real challenge is because you want them to like stay fixed on the TV to watch the funny, embarrassing thing, not the thing that might be complicated or just not have a visual element to it.
1: I had this really demoralizing moment. I was riding uh, on the subway yesterday and I was just reading over the shoulder of the person next to me. And he was just reading a series of websites, and they were all you know, kind of conservative websites. And just watching him select what he was going to read was so strange. And it was like it was such a it was such a sort of dark mirror on myself. I was like, oh, if he'd been looking over my shoulder, the experience he would be having uh, would be the same. Such a sense of kind of distance and alienation. And that that part of it, I don't have any remedy for in the trump age or any other age which is you know you can cover all you want you can you can do all you want to pick the right stories but if if the audience has selected you out you're not getting anywhere anyway you're just speaking to people who are you already speaking to the
2: worst thing is that you might not be speaking not even to your own people but to no one because everybody goes to their two sides and then here you are maintaining your little standard in an empty room so that's not good No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Chelsea Manning, who is a low-level Army intelligence analyst, leaked hundreds of thousands of documents to WikiLeaks and was then sentenced to 35 years in military prison for her lawbreaking. Had her sentence commuted this week by President Obama, Manning will be out of prison in May under Obama's ruling. She committed her crimes as Bradley Manning and announced her gender dysphoria soon after she went to prison. She's been the only transgender woman in Fort Leavenworth and has been in mental agony, according to uh, accounts about her. She attempted suicide. She's been put in solitary confinement. The military has not treated her particularly well.
0: Well, and a UN report said that she was being treated with cruel, inhuman and degrading conditions. Let's get that in there.
1: Why commute her sentence, Emily? She... You know, she committed huge crimes.
0: Yeah, she committed these crimes. She um, released in a kind of indiscriminate way a lot of secret information. Um, and when the government prosecuted her, the argument went so far as to charge her with aiding and abetting the enemy, which is essentially treason. And the idea there was that she had released damaging information that she should have known that terrorists like Osama bin Laden would have wanted out there um, in order to damage the standing of the United States internationally. We should also say that some of this information um, was about... (laughs) bad things the united states was doing i mean the i remember talking about this video that came out of shooting of yeah it was was a
1: reuters uh reuters cameraman cameraman. yeah
2: it was a it was drone not drone footage but um but uh footage from the plane that dropped the missile or fired the missile.
0: right and they mistook the cameras for guns right okay so right i remember that was like upsetting and dramatic and Certainly worth talking about. I mean, I also want to note that while this was secret information, it had a lower level of classification. This was not like the deepest, darkest secrets of the sort that Edward Snowden released. Manning was not actually convicted of aiding the enemy. She was convicted of a bunch, a lot of other charges. The other thing is she pled guilty to a lot of lower charges, and the government decided to prosecute her on the more serious ones anyway. And she got a 35-year sentence, which if she was a civilian would not have happened, presumably, but that has to do with military judgment. And so you can argue that that Is fair enough that because she was in the military being held to this higher standard and she could have in some ways endangered the lives of service folks abroad that she deserved to have the book thrown at her? Or you can argue that 35 years in prison for releasing information, some of which I think many of us think should have been released, that seven years is enough for that, especially seven years that included the conditions we were just talking about. My first lens for thinking about it was, okay, well, what do I think about this sentence length here? And to me, seven years seems like a lot of years and a su- sufficient deterrent to other people to do this kind of leaking, because that's obviously something the government sh- and President Obama should be thinking about. So that's where I start. But I also recognize there's another way of thinking about it, which is tied to, you know, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and this whole question of like, how can we in any way countenance that kind of leaking because of the damage it just did to the American election, according to our intelligence agents. It just that wasn't the prism that came to me at first. And I wonder what you guys think and whether you think that those connections that the critics of this release have been making, whether they seem like those are fair enough.
2: Right. The two main criticisms are that the that the damage was bigger than people are saying and that you can never know how much damage was done. Uh, the second criticism is that the trust bond that was broken, it goes beyond punishing just the person who broke that trust bond, but it goes to the overall bond that must exist. You've got to hold like a maximalist position or else the damage spreads within the military. Right. The maximalist position, meaning? Meaning if you break the bond of trust, you get the
1: book thrown at you and there's no, like, that's yeah. it. Yeah. I was surprised to yes, find. You don't even know what I was surprised by. What was I surprised oh, sorry. by? sorry. I was surprised, what was I surprised that Obama
0: by? commuted her sentence. Oh, Go ahead. That was not what I was
1: surprised by. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised to find that, the, that mostly leakers are sentenced to one to three years in prison. That the, civilian the, leakers. Civilian leakers, that the, that the prison sentence is that small. I thought like if a civilian had leaked something on the level of what Chelsea Manning leaked, I would have thought a 10-year sentence would have sounded more or less right to me. Huh. So so I, it feels to me like the, 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 the sentence that Manning has served is pretty commensurate with what I think the crime she committed deserves.
0: The commuted sentence. Not the commuted sentence, right.
1: Sentence? Yeah, 35 years. I think 35 years is too much of a sentence for any crime.
0: Serial murderers?
1: Well, serial murderers I think should be executed and basically anyone who you think – can live a life afterwards should, you know, maximum sentence should be 15, 20 years.
0: I don't think I agree with that in the case of murderers, not just serial murderers or not, though certainly not all murderers. Anyway, to why do we have lower sentence for civilians? It's partly because we're negotiating the tension between clamping down on leaking and allowing for some whistleblowing. I mean, we have a Federal Whistleblower Protection Act, which can come into play in some of these cases. And Chelsea Manning has certainly tried to style herself a whistleblower. I mean, she doesn't qualify by any means for the legal definition. But because some of what she leaked were were abuses, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who think that's A pretty valid point. Do you guys think that President Obama diminished his own standing or moral authority with this commutation?
2: Hmm. You mean in the in the sweep of history?
0: Yeah, like is is this going to be a black mark against him in the way that some of the critics of it are saying now? And is there a hypocrisy about you know railing against Russia's (laughs) role in (laughs) hacking and WikiLeaks? To me, that that, seems fairly tenuous in connection. Uh,
2: Well, I do think the. In the current moment we're in, in which WikiLeaks is being described as the devil,
1: uh, that this is com- complicates the, the politics of that a little bit. I never thought that WikiLeaks was the problem. WikiLeaks is a, is a platform for distributing this information. And WikiLeaks received, happily received information from Chelsea Manning, from Edward Snowden, well, actually not from Edward Snowden, and from the Russian hacks. But that WikiLeaks was not in itself the active thief. So – uh, you can distinguish like there, there's an the, the the crime of what happened with Russia was not that WikiLeaks distributed something. It's that Russia committed and, you know, set itself to gather this information and release it in a damaging way. WikiLeaks was the platform, the means through which it was released. But that that WikiLeaks itself was not the criminal. In the case of Manning, Manning's the criminal. WikiLeaks was not really the criminal. Manning did something wrong and should be punished for it. If you're Obama, you can say Manning, you know, admitted guilt, took responsibility, served time, and that's reasonable, and that's not a really a problem of WikiLeaks. It's a problem of Manning. So, so I guess I, I, I hate calling these WikiLeaks cases. I like yeah. calling it Russian hacking cases and Manning, you know, a Manning, uh, whatever we call it, theft case.
2: Help me puzzle through this. Which is on the one hand, part there's some constituency. I think, unless I'm inventing a constituency, in which case you can tell me I'm wrong. There's some constituency that believes that Manning should be given a reduced sentence because she, you know, information wants to be free and she helped that happen. But if information wants to be free, then you, could argue, then you can say, well, then there was nothing wrong with all the people who were covering and writing about and disseminating thoughts about the emails that Hillary Clinton's chief of staff or that John Podesta, chairman of her campaign, sent out. That if you're on the one hand celebrating the information wants to be free, then you can't condemn the people who trafficked in and talked about the WikiLeaks uh, emails of the Clinton campaign. I think that one obvious distinction between the two is one is information that's a part of the government and the other is private emails.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... I agree with everything David just said, but I also think you're right that there's a complexity to the politics that it has to do with the distinctions we're trying to articulate because it takes a few sentences to say what those differences are. And if you have this very black and white notion like leaking good secrets bad, then you end up having to defend if you're you know, not excited about the Podesta emails coming out why that's a distinction. I just think that's like you know, it's too black and white, right? I mean, we can have um, questions about the levels of government secrecy, whether too much information is classified, whether the government classifies um, too much information just to avoid embarrassment or a stain on its image and reputation versus should we have an expectation that, you know, private emails we own and that people shouldn't come in and steal them, whether they're Russian hackers or whether they're, you know, hacking like visa numbers and social security numbers from Yahoo or some other site. Those, It seems like we should be able to have those in two categories. But I do think that if you're trying to just make like a very simple sweeping statement, this becomes more problematic.
2: I I would like to add, I sure would be interested in what um the incoming president thinks about this. Having once I think he said Julian Assange should be executed. Yeah. He's very much into the execution of people who leak things and now obviously has benefited from and and in fact in his press conferences last time talked about the fruits of the leak, which was kind of floored me when when he basically said, "Yes, Russians may have hacked, but boy, those all those horrible things they said about Hillary Clinton in her emails." So, if you know, after having benefited from the fruit of the poison tree, he still maintains his maximalist position about those who plant the trees uh, would be. a He
0: hasn't made a peep about Manning, and it certainly was something he could have decided to attack Obama about. I don't yeah, think he said yeah. a single. Yeah, word I mean, the
1: people who've peeped about point. the conservatives who have peeped about Manning are the Never Trumpers, the National Review. crowd mccain but the trump the trump people have been pretty quiet
2: right and he certainly was making it we talked a lot about the bo bergdahl case during his candidacy which uh, which is another suggestion that his inclinations would be to tweet about this except for the the complicated position it puts him in which is an interesting thing to think about where he stays his impulses since we spend so much time focusing on where he doesn't
1: All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're unwinding after watching the Trump inauguration, or maybe after marching uh, on the day after the Trump inauguration, Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about?
0: I got tickled this week by the discovery of a new sea dragon. The ruby sea dragon got discovered, I think, in the waters off of New Zealand or Australia. There's a little cute video of it on national geographic that we can link to and i found this especially heartwarming because i was totally um dismayed by another story this week about how um between 15 and 65 percent, i think of primate species are endangered or in other trouble around the world including all the ape species i'm especially fond of apes and i mean they're practically like us. If we can't take care of them, what's going to happen to the human species? That really, really got to me, especially because the Republicans are talking about messing with the Endangered Species Act in a way that I'm sure will not be good for the species who are on the verge of extinction or in trouble in the United States. So anyway, this ruby sea dragon... Go watch the video of it if you want a kind of cheering moment. Oh, and there's one other part of this chatter, which is that, did you guys see that a scientist who discovered a very small moth named it after Donald Trump because it has like kind of a weird hairstyle? And also he said that he was trying to encourage Trump to think about taking care of the natural world.
1: Huh. John, what is your chatter?
2: First, the Slate Plus that Laura Miller and I um, did on the Brothers Karamazov should be up soon. So, part of Slate's Great Books series, and since I had to read all eight hundred pages of Brothers yeah. Karamazov, I, I think everybody should. Uh, Do you call
1: it? My father calls it the BK the bk it, yeah. brothers
2: That's so k cute. brothers k was was what i was referring oh, to it um, i never read it yeah
0: it's a classic Just and also go, you're lo-
2: uh, with in. your goatee i don't know you you're, you're looking it. kind of yeah. you look like you guy who's reading russian literature right <laughs> i'm
1: um, i'm the coughing it up
2: <laughs> but anyway my actual chatter was that uh, whistle stop this week is about andrew jackson's inauguration in 1829 so i was spending a lot of time with andrew jackson um, uh, and the the revelation of that moment is um, for me anyway was that this party at the White House that was overrun and he had to climb out the window because there were so many people at the White House when he threw the doors open for all the regular folk who came to Washington for his inauguration what I guess I had never known was that they weren't there just to say like Andrew we love you they were all there to get jobs and so he had promised to sort of drain the swamp or sweep out the Ogean sables, as they put it at the time and yet everybody there was basically yes 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 throw everybody out and then give us jobs which is just a Uh, and you know history sends us warnings sometimes about reform and how it works out and the spoil system came out uh, as a result of what Jackson ended up doing but that's not the point of my chatter the point of my chatter is about a fight between Thomas Hart Benton and Andrew Jackson one of the many fights and duels that he was a part of and the reason I was uh, amused by it is one when Jackson gave his inauguration he had still two bullets left in him from his brawls and, and duels but this one with Thomas Hart Benton Jackson was general of the Tennessee militia, and Benton was his aide de camp. So the quarrel happened when a friend of Jackson's and Benton's brother got in their own duel. Each, they shot each other and survived, but Jackson was there at the duel as a as a like mediator, and Benton accused him of running the duel unfairly in a in way that got his brother in, in trouble or at least got him shot. And so basically Jackson was offended by that and said that Benton – remember, his aide-de-camp needed a good thrashing, so they ran into each other outside of a hotel and a brawl ensued. Jackson was hit by two bullets in this brawl, one in the left arm and one in the left shoulder, which ruptured an artery. Um, Basically, Jackson got pulled out, bleeding profusely, and Benton had his own issues because he um, fell down a flight of stairs at the beginning of the fight. Anyway, then fast forward, Jackson becomes president, and who's one of his strongest allies in the Senate? Thomas Hart Benton, who helps him in his fight against the Second Bank of the United States and Benton years later was asked if he knew Andrew Jackson and he replied, yes, sir, I knew him, sir. General Jackson was a very great man, sir. I shot him, sir. Afterward, he was
1: of great use to me, sir, in my battle with the United States Bank. Was Thomas Hart Benton also the painter? Was he the painter, the same Thomas Hart Benton? No.
0: That seems like too many lives.
2: Yeah, that seems like too
1: much. Look that up while I chatter. You can okay. intervene in my chatter with the answer. I'm going to do two chatters. Uh, I had one, and then I discovered something else, and so I'm just going to do two. No, Thomas Hart Benton, the painter, died in 1975.
0: Could be related.
1: I'm working on it. Okay. Keep going. Uh, so the first, my first chatter is um, Osito Waynevu, who is a Slate staffer, had a absolutely fantastic exhortation sermon in slate this week which was called run for office and it's just a message to anybody who is upset about what's happening in american politics particularly democrats and just saying run for office and it's just very powerfully written very direct i i finished it in cheers um the, the most meaningful thing you could do in the age of Trump for your community, for your country, is run for office. Across America, Republican politicians stand ready to do their part in the implementation of Trump, the Trump and GOP agenda. Beat them. Across America, Democrats blind to the stakes of the moment, comfortable in their positions, are too timid to fight effectively against the Republican Party. Stand like bowling pins ready to be knocked down again. Replace them. Not with some milquetoast professional or former lobbyist groomed by the state party. You – you with the undocumented parents, you who remembers when your town was a steel town, you PTA regular, you professor, you concerned citizen should run. Your talents are demanded. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't despair. Don't boo. Run. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it goes on in this vein. It's just really very effective piece of rhetoric. And um, I came away hoping that Osita was going to run for something and and also thinking that's a that was a very – Well argued case for for involvement. I think at a time when people are cynical and skeptical about politics, he sort of makes a makes a strong argument against it. So that's my number one chatter. My number two chatter is that as I was uh, on the train home yesterday, I came across probably the greatest. um, I just want to spend two minutes paying tribute to the greatest artistic creation of the Obama years, which of course is the Onion's Joe Biden. Um, The Onion's Joe Biden is going to be retired. The Onion has created a Joe Biden who is Joe Biden as a sort of seventeen year old metalhead in nineteen eighty six. Um that is who the persona of their Joe Biden is. And they've just done a series of incredible stories about Diamond Joe uh, over the past eight years. And I just they they put them all together in an interactive. The first one is Joe Biden shows up to inauguration with Ponytail. Biden quietly singing Pearl Jam's Even Flow during security briefing. Shirtless Biden washes Trans Am in White House driveway. Biden requests to be named special envoy to Reno. Biden invokes Freedom of Information Act to find out when women woman gets off work. Biden winks after offering to buy eggnog for White House Christmas party. Biden receives a lifetime ban from Dave and Buster's. Biden to cool his heels in Mexico for a while. Bounced Joe Biden checks still taped up in Delaware liquor store. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. And they're just so great. You should check them out at the onion. Uh, are they related? Is Benton related? According to Wikipedia.
2: At the top, it says for U.S. Senator of the same name, see Thomas Hart Benton, politician. But it, you would think that perhaps it would say, you know, his uncle, great uncle, whatever. Right. But I okay, mean, this on the is other a case.
0: mystery, and we would love for our listeners to help us solve it. It's
1: not that interesting a mystery. It's actually, it's like, what am I going to have for lunch? It's,
0: it's a tiny historical <laughs> question that we asked. How about that?
1: Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. If Shapiro helped on today's show. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, the chief content officer for Panoply. GabFest is part of the Panoply network. Our entire roster of shows is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in itunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david Plotz. we'll talk to you next week and i hope we'll see you at our march 1st show in los angeles it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper